Can you pick out a bad argument when you hear it? What are some of the most commonly used bad arguments in our culture? How can we, as Christ followers, develop good arguments for our faith? That's what we're going to be discussing today on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, an apologetics podcast to help equip Christians to engage the culture through biblical, critical thinking. Your hosts for this podcast are Robbie Lashua and Tyler Hurley. Robbie is pastor of apologetics at Desert Springs Community Church, as well as professor of apologetics, worldview, and ethics at Mission Bible Institute. He is a graduate of Phoenix Seminary, as well as a graduate of the Master's in Christian Apologetics program at Biola University. Tyler is currently earning his undergraduate degree in theology at Grand Canyon University, and currently serves as an apologetics intern at Desert Springs Community Church. Hello, welcome to Christ's Culture and Coffee. I'm Robbie Lashua, your host for this episode. Uh, Tyler is just coming back from Europe. I know I mentioned that last week. He was over there. Thanks so much for praying for him. He's had a good trip so far, um, but he'll be back with us next week, hopefully, and we can hopefully hear about his uh, trip while he was over there. Um, but yeah, just glad to be back this week. Got some really cool stuff to talk about today about arguments and what's a fallacious argument and what makes a good argument. How have Christians used bad arguments? arguments in the past, and how can we make sure that we don't use bad arguments when we're talking with our friends, family, and neighbors about who Jesus is. Uh, before we get into today's topic, though, we are going to award another coffee mug giveaway today. Um, I was uh, given this story by one of my good friends, Kyle. So Kyle, you're the winner of the coffee mug today. And uh, this is his coffee tip. Really fascinating. <clears throat> he was telling me, how uh, Yemen was actually the, the coffee mecca of the world for many, many years. For about 300 years, they kind of had a monopoly on coffee production, and everyone was going there and um, um, buying coffee from them. But what they did was they wouldn't allow anyone to buy coffee plants or even to take coffee seeds uh, so that they could grow them elsewhere. Really smart business move, right? Don't let anybody else have access to what you're doing in your crops. However, the drink kept getting more and more popular, and as uh, the, the Yemenis were um, sending out the uh, coffee from the port of, of Mocha in Yemen, which is where we, we correlate Mocha with coffee, um, <clears throat> they were sending out all around the world, and it began to get more and more popular in Europe, all over the place. And so what happened was the demand for it was so much that people were trying to buy coffee plants, they were trying to buy uh, coffee seeds, but... Uh, the people of Yemen would not allow that to occur. So the story goes that there was a um, a man who who wanted coffee so bad and wanted to produce it so bad that he actually went to Mocha, he went to Yemen, and he stole a whole bunch of coffee plants in order to uh, plant them elsewhere and grow more and more uh, coffee plantations. And so that's just what he did. Uh, this man went into uh, Yemen and he stole a bunch of coffee plants and he, uh, he <laughs> distributed them throughout the world. Uh, his name was uh, Peter van der Brock uh, and he was a Dutch cloth merchant. So he was sailing in and out of the ports over there. Uh, yeah, and he, he smuggled these plants out of the country. And after that happened, uh, within about 40 years, 
years, there were coffee plantations all over the world in the West Indies, uh, in East Africa, in Latin America, in Indonesia. And um, the, the people of Yemen no longer had a monopoly on coffee. So uh, I don't think st- stealing is a good idea. Um, but at the same time, this man uh, may be responsible for, for how much coffee is produced around the world uh, these days. There's another um, story, and I don't know if this is true or if it's folklore. It kind of goes along the same lines as the one I just told you um, about uh, the, the Yemenis having coffee um, and, and, and having a monopoly on it. And um, there was this man, the legend says, uh, Indian folklore, East Indian folklore, says this man of uh, Baba Budin. Uh, he actually <laughs> was a monk, and he wanted coffee uh, to be grown in India. So what they say he did is he went to Yemen, and he smuggled seven raw coffee beans, raw coffee, you know, uh, cherries, uh, berries, uh, out of Yemen, out of Mocha, and he hid them. Get this, he hid them in his beard. So that's how he got away with it. He must have had some epic beard. So for all you guys out there that are growing those beards for this trend, I used to have a huge beard. Um, This is something that he used to conceal uh, seven coffee seeds to get it out to the world and especially over to India. And and that's what India says uh, he did. And they actually have commemorated him with um, 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 shrines and with with a whole area. I think there's a mountain range named after him. Uh, And so um, there's these stories about the the people who freed coffee right from the from the grasp of the people of Yemen so that the world could enjoy it Um, I certainly enjoy it I don't uh, I don't condone stealing um, but these uh, these stories uh, which I think the first one's true the second one might not be um, but I, I I think they're interesting and I'd never heard them before until my friend Kyle shared them so that's the coffee tip for today we may have to thank certain thieves for giving us coffee production like we have it today. There you go. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for that tip. Uh, I'll be sending out the the mug to you uh, next time I see you. Hopefully, I'll have it for you. Um, and yeah, if you have a coffee tip, we're, we're almost down to the last couple mugs. But if you have a coffee tip and you would like to send it in to us, you can send it in. Uh, uh, if you look at the show notes, there's a link uh, to an email to send it into. And if we pick to, to share it on the air, we will uh, send you a free Christ Culture and Coffee logo uh, mug. Uh, our way of saying thanks for uh, sending that in. Well, let's get into the topic today. Um, We're talking about arguments and what is an argument and what are bad arguments Um, because as Christians, we're called to have good reason and good evidence, good arguments, good persuasion uh, in order to share Christ with the world. Um, One of the people that I really uh, look up to in Scripture, other than Jesus, of course, uh, is the Apostle Paul. And looking at his methodology of how he went about planting churches, how he went about uh, sharing the gospel, doing apologetics, uh, it's just really inspiring. And I think we have a lot to glean from looking at his example. So there's a few um, verses from Acts that I'd like to read to you. The first comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And this is when Paul got to Thessalonica. And this is what he started doing. This was the ministry strategy of Paul in Thessalonica. Uh, Acts 17, 2 through 3 says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, is the Messiah. Um, this is an interesting passage, because what did he do? He went 
and he reasoned with people. He reasoned. He used scriptures. He explained. It also says explaining and giving evidence. And I think those two things are really important for a good argument, reason and evidence, reason and evidence, right? Uh, later on in the chapter in Acts 17, 17 through 18 is when Paul gets to Athens. <clears throat> and this is what it says he did when he was in Athens. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So again, what we see Paul doing in Athens is going to the synagogue, and he is reasoning, it said, with the Jews that were there. He's going to the marketplace. He's reasoning with people who are there. And then he encounters these uh, philosophers, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they actually invite him to go to Mars Hill, to go to the Areopagus, where all the other philosophers are. And uh, he goes up there, and he he presents an apologetic argument. He relates um, uh, the gospel and who God is to cultural things that they had, like the... the, the um, the altar to the unknown God, right? The statue of the unknown God. He ties that in with him presenting uh, truth. But again, we see reasoning here. He's reasoning with people and he's taking time, right? It says uh, it says that he, he was doing it in the marketplace every day. So it wasn't just like a one-time thing. He was doing it continually and, and talking with people and reasoning with them, helping them to see truth. When Paul gets to Corinth, Acts 18.4, says, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Reasoning and persuading, right? Helping people to understand, not just telling them the truth, but helping them get to comprehend it and to see what it is. Persuasion. Uh, then he goes from Corinth to Ephesus in Acts 19.8. It says, and he entered the synagogue and he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. There it is again, a long time spent with people, reasoning with them and persuading them. He then goes on to Rome, and, and this is the last uh, verse I'll share with you. But Paul gets to Rome and he's, he's under house arrest and uh, Acts 28, 23 through 24 says this. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. So what is he doing again? He's testifying to people. He's trying to persuade them. He's explaining things to them. He's taking time, right, a long time, from morning until evening, all day, trying to help people see the truth. And I think that this is something that we can learn from Paul. He does this in many other places. I don't want to share with you um, all of them, but when he's in Iconium and Lystra in Acts chapter uh, 14, he does this. Um, the, the verses I mentioned to you, but in Acts 22, this mob beats him up, and then the centurions come to, to take him away, and he stops them, and he wants to give a speech. He wants to reason. He wants to explain things to the mob. Uh, before the Jewish council in Acts 23, he does it. When he's on trial before Felix in Acts 26, when he's on trial before King Agrippa in Acts, uh, in Acts 26, Felix is Acts 24. Um, but on and on and on. We saw this. This is kind of Paul's MO. This is his methodology for missions. Reasoning, giving evidence, and persuading people. Reasoning, giving evidence, and persuading people. And I think that this is something that we can learn a lot from. This is the way to formulate an argument. This is what we're supposed to do. 
So what I want to do uh, now with the podcast is I want to explain to you uh, three things that I've seen in culture that are really bad ways that people make arguments, horrible ways to argue. Um, and, and Christians actually sometimes fall into these traps. They're, they're, lo- they're, they're, they're fallacies is what they are, um, fallacious arguments. <clears throat> and um, I want to point them out to you so that you don't use them as a tactic because they're not good, um, but also so that you can spot them in culture and you can explain to people why that's not a good argument. After we go through these three, uh, then I'm going to explain what a good argument argument looks like and how we can go about formulating them. So the first the first bad argument I want to share, and all of them start with a P, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to help it be easier for you to remember, right? Um, but one of the things that, that happens in our culture is a lot of people confuse truth with passion, right? Truth with passion. Oh man, that guy was just so sincere. Or, oh, he was such a powerful speaker. And, and it is a danger Whenever we confuse passion with truth, it's a danger. And, and we've all seen people manipulate others by using passion or emotion, right? Adolf Hitler was a phenomenal speaker, phenomenally charismatic, phenomenally passionate, right? If you go and watch some old footage of him giving speeches, I mean, he's pounding the pulpit, he's yelling, he's rating inflection going up and going down. I mean, he was a phenomenal speaker. It's just the things he was saying were complete lies. They were untruth. They weren't real, right? Um, We shouldn't look at other races as in inferior to us. Uh, eugenics isn't true. Uh, evolution isn't true. All these things that he was explaining and how he mobilized the German people to commit such atrocities during World War II, during the Holocaust, um, is because he was really passionate. And there were many people who confused passion for truth. They were led astray through emotions. And emotions are not good indicators of truth. Now, I want to I say something here. Just because somebody's passionate doesn't mean that they're de facto lying to you, all right? <clears throat> That's not true. Um, many speakers that I know, many preachers, can mix passion with truth. And, man, that is a beautiful combination. It's powerful. But we always need to be on guard to make sure what we're being told is true, not um, um, feel good about what we're being told or get inspired about it or, oh, that was just really a lot of hype. Uh, I'm really jacked up about that speech, right? We're not looking for pep talks. We're looking for truth. And I, I know a lot of people who base <laughs> their version of truth on what they feel, right? On what they feel. What we feel doesn't dictate truth. And even if people are good speakers, um, we can't confuse passion for truth. Uh, some of the ways that this this plays out in our culture um, is um, is actually it's it's a tactic of of Mormonism, right? What's their highest epistemology? What is the highest way that they know they have the truth? Well, if you ever ask any Mormon to give you their testimony, they're going to say, um, "I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. I know Mormonism is true." And I felt it, right? Well, what do you mean? How do you know it's true? Well, I just, I feel it. It's a feeling, right? It's a burning in the bosom. It's this confirmation I have. I had this experience of a feeling. And when they're telling you this, 
I, I've had this happen to me before. Uh, they're very sincere. Uh, they're not lying to you. They really felt something. They're very sincere about it. Sometimes they'll tear up. It's an emotional thing. But they're confusing emotions with truth. You need more than just how you feel about things, right? Now, a lot of us as Christians have used this argument as well, right? When, when asked or pressed or, or, you know, somebody's backing us into a corner and arguing with us, how do you know it's true? Well, I just know. Well, how? Well, because of my testimony, because of what happened to me and how I felt. Well, again, I, I don't think it's invalid, and I, I wouldn't say that, that feelings you've had as a Christian or hearing God speak to you, I think that stuff does happen. I just don't think it's a good argument, because the Mormon can say, well, I felt the opposite. The Muslim can say, well, I feel like Islam's true. The Jehovah's Witness can say the same thing. So whose feelings trump the other's feelings, right? So you just get at an impasse and you go, well, I guess we can never know, or I think my feelings are more valid than yours. Neither of those is a good way to argue. We've also seen uh, this, this, mistake, this, this mistake of uh, confusing passion for truth. Um, sometimes it's not just with passion in speeches. Sometimes it's not with sincerity. Sometimes uh, people can manipulate with pity. They can get you to feel bad for them. And, and that is a way of confusing emotions with truth, passion with truth, right? Um, we, we saw this happen <clears throat> with the, um, the homosexual marriage movement in America a few years ago, right? One of the big arguments, one of the, one of the big pushes from, from the homosexual side was we just want to have the same rights as everybody else. We don't have the same rights. All we want is equality. And this argument is a argument appealing to pity. Um, feel bad for us. We don't have what everyone else has. We're being discriminated against. We're being treated poorly. And all we're asking for is equality, right? It makes you feel bad for them in order to give what they want. You're, mis you're mistaking an emotional response that you have for what's actually true. Uh, with that situation, what was actually true was that everybody had equal rights. Um, before the Supreme Court passed the, the ruling on marriage, uh, I couldn't marry a man, and a homosexual man couldn't marry a man. Now, I, I could legally marry a woman, and he could legally marry a woman. So I couldn't marry a man, he couldn't marry a man. I could marry a woman, he could marry a woman. Those are the same rights. We had the exact same rights before the Supreme Court changed the, the law. Um, but they didn't want to have equal rights because they already had equal rights. They wanted an extra right. They wanted a new rule that catered to their wants and desires, even though previously we had the exact same rights. And one of the ways they argued for it was through appealing to pity. Feel bad for us because we don't have what everyone else has. And that's all we want. We just want to have what everyone else already has. We can't mistake passion for truth. Don't mistake emotions for truth, all right? So that's the first, that's the first bad way to argue, mistaking passion for truth. The second is this. We should not confuse popularity with truth, okay? That's the second P, popularity. 
how does this happen? Well, um, we, we can see just even an example with Paul where he wasn't always popular, right? Mobs were beating him up. He was getting thrown in jail. <laughs> um, he's writing letters from jail. The letter to the Philippians, right, is from jail. Um, he, he wasn't after popularity. He, he cared about what was true, what was true. Often in our culture, we can be misled by popularity or popular opinion. And we've seen this happen in a lot of ways. Uh, you remember uh, a few hundred years ago that uh, many people believed the Earth was the center of the solar system. Well, it didn't matter how many people believed that. It wasn't true. The popular opinion was completely wrong. It was completely wrong. So popular opinion doesn't make something true. It doesn't make something real. Now, I want to be careful again, just like with passion, um, just because something's popular doesn't mean it's de facto untrue or it's a de facto lie. Um, Jesus is very popular, and I think he's also true, right? So popularity doesn't make something untrue if it is true. But popularity definitely doesn't make something true just because uh, the fact that it's popular. And so we can't confuse popularity with truth. Uh, during the Crusades, uh, I believe it was Pope Urban, he promised uh, the knights, the crusaders, that if they'd go to uh, the Holy Land and fight for the cause of the Crusades, that he would absolve them of sin and they wouldn't have to spend time in purgatory. This was a very popular idea, and it mobilized a whole bunch of people to go and to fight in the Holy Land. The problem is, is that uh, purgatory isn't a biblical concept at all. It's not true. It's, it's not real, even though many people believed it was, and it was popular opinion. And also, the Pope has no authority to forgive anyone their sins. That's only for God to do, right? Jesus says that in Mark chapter 2, when he forgives sins. Um, the, the Sadducees are right when they say, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus says, well, I'm actually God, because watch this, I'll show you. I'm going to do a miracle to prove I am who I say I am, I, and I do have the authority to forgive sins. Uh, so the Pope can't, even though it was a popular idea during the Crusades, um, it wasn't true at all. It wasn't true at all. Um, again, I think that uh, we've seen this uh, currently in our society where popular opinion was completely mistaken. And, and I'm talking about uh, when I was in high school in the late 90s when boy bands were popular and people would consider that to be actual music. Completely wrong. <laughs> popular opinion, not true at all. Those bands were horrendous and still are to this day, and that's my contention. And if you don't believe me, well, you've got bigger problems. Popularity does not dictate truth, does not make something true at all. Uh, sometimes um, this, this uh, confusing popularity for truth actually is called um, bandwagoning, right? Bandwagoning. You know what I'm talking about, all of you Lakers fans, because you just jump on the bandwagon when they're good. All of you Seahawks fans, you just jump on the bandwagon when they're good. Uh, when it comes to uh, truth, bandwagoning is, is believing that an argument or a movement is correct just because many people are are agreeing with it and it's gaining steam just because it's becoming a fad. And this is not a good indicator of truth, but but this is how it takes form in our culture. Um, you'll hear people say, oh, you believe in the Bible? You believe in that old book, that old-fashioned book? Well, I guess you can do that if you want to, but I'm going to be over here being more progressive. 
I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard that term, right? We're progressive. We're the positive. You're the negative, right? Uh, even the words they choose to use. And you go, progressive? I want to be progressive. I like progress. I don't, I don't like things going backwards. I like things moving forward. Um, but the question is, is, is what they believe is progress is it actually progress or is it a regression, right? Is it regress or is it progress? Um, just because it's popular or it's gaining popularity doesn't make it true. I've heard people say things, you know, in regards to homosexuality or in regards to transgenderism, and they'll say things such as, well, I am so glad that I'm on the right side of history. And what are they saying with that? I'm on the right side of history. What they're saying is... Um, my opinion about a certain issue is popular now, and it wasn't popular before, and all those people were idiots. But my opinion is now popular, gain-steamed, and I'm glad that my idea is popular. Well, that doesn't make it true at all, right? I mean, that's just, that's just popularity. Sometimes you'll hear people say it like, well, you're closed-minded. I'm inclusive. Don't you want to jump on the bandwagon of being inclusive? Come on, come over here. It's better. Be inclusive with us. Don't confuse popularity with truth. It is a danger. We cannot, we cannot confuse popularity with truth. What we need to seek is, is this thing actually true? Is this opinion actually valid? We're going to talk about how to do that after the last bad argument. And the last bad argument that I see people um, appeal to a lot is, is that they appeal to positions of authority. We cannot confuse truth with positions of authority. That's the third, the third P, positions. Positions of authority. Right. I, I have been in arguments with non-Christians. I've been in arguments with Christians. And this one comes up all the time where people will disagree with what you're saying and they'll quote some expert as if that wins the argument. Right. I was talking with somebody once about theology and they said, so you disagree with this person, this person, this person, this person. And they named a bunch of theologians. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do disagree with them. <laughs> And they said, well, I just can't believe that. You don't think that, that that invalidates your opinion, right? That's what he was insinuating. And I said, no. I said, I could, name, I could name theologians who agree with me, but that doesn't win my argument, right? We need to look at the merits of the argument. We need to, we need to see, is this thing actually true? Not who agrees with it, what experts are on my side, right? And so often this is what people do. Uh, you know, a lot of times people say, I can't believe you believe in Christianity, right? Because why? Well, science says, right? Science, that authority. Science says, and you say, I'm not against science, right? But um, science actually, I learned this uh, from, from some of my professors, science doesn't say anything. Scientists say things, right? We all have access to science. It's how we're interpreting it and explaining what's going on. Uh, so that's, that's what's important there. But um, appealing to an authority doesn't win your argument for you. That authority may help you see the, the validity of the argument, but just saying that there's smart people who agree with me, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't help with anything. Now, I think that this probably is the one that Christians uh, use the most, and we shouldn't use this type of an argument. But when you're talking with somebody and you don't have a good argument, you don't have a good case, right? You can't reason or persuade or give evidence the way Paul did in Acts. We get flustered, right? And so we'll revert to saying, well, the Bible says, 
well, I the Bible says it, so I'm going to believe it, and that settles it, right? You've seen those bumper stickers before, I'm sure. The problem with that idea is that any worldview can claim the same thing, right? Shiva said it, that, and I believe it, that settles it. Buddha said it, I believe it, that settles it. Joseph Smith said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, no. Appealing to Joseph Smith or Shiva or Buddha or the Bible, it doesn't prove anything. It's just saying I have an authority that I trust. But another person can say, well, I just have this authority that I trust. How do we get past that? Well, we get past that by saying, well, who, which authority has good reasons? Which authority has good argument? Which authority has good evidence? We can't just say, well, the Bible says, well, my pastor says, well, when I was a kid, my parents taught me. Uh, those are just um, confusing positions of authority with the truth. And we need to do better than that. And we can do better than that. So... The three ways that we argue that are bad, and our society uses these all the time, and I don't want you to argue in this way. Don't confuse passion with truth. Emotions are not an argument, right? Emotions are not an argument. Second P, popularity. Don't confuse popularity with truth. Just because an idea is popular or it's gaining popularity doesn't make it true. The third way that we shouldn't argue is that we should not confuse truth with positions of authority. Appealing to authority is not an argument at all. It's not an argument at all. So let's not do those things. Passion, popularity, positions of authority. What is a good argument? That's what I want to get into next. A good argument, um, I, I want to use this analogy of a house. A good argument is like a house. The roof of the house is the top, right? A good roof can shield you from, from bad stuff, right? From the rain, from snow, from sun, all of that stuff. A good roof holds up. That's kind of the idea. And the roof of the house is your conclusion or it's your opinion. It's, it's what you've come to believe to be true. Now, to have a good roof, you have to have something holding it up. When it comes to a real house, you really need walls to hold up your roof, right? Roof, a roof without walls is kind of useless. <laughs> it's meaningless. It's just sitting on the ground doing nothing. Uh, an opinion or a conclusion by itself isn't an argument. An argument is an opinion or a conclusion. It's a roof that is held up and supported by walls of reason and evidence. That's what a good argument is. That's what we're after. I have an opinion. I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Why? Well, that's my roof. I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then I've got all of these walls of good reasoning and good evidence that are supporting my conclusion. Uh, for the month of April, we're going to be talking about the resurrection and all of the evidence. I mean, copious amounts of evidence, so many different ways to show that, that this guy actually did rise from the dead. We have a ton of evidence for it. We have a ton of good reasoning for it. So that's what we're going to be talking about for April. But for the analogy, I have a lot of good, solid, strong walls supporting my conclusion. Many people in our society today will go around espousing things, espousing opinions as if it's true when really they have a roof that's just sitting on the ground because they've got nothing supporting it. They've got nothing backing it up. They've got no strong foundation for their opinion. We see this all the time. <clears throat> One of the ways you'll see it is when they revert to arguing in those three ways we talked about, those three ways that are bad. If, if their wall is, well, this person one time said, 
that's not a strong opinion. That's not a strong reason. Um, that's a weak reason. They don't have a good wall holding up the roof. If they appeal to, well, I just, I feel so sincere about it and I just know it's true because of a feeling. Man, everybody could say that. That's not a strong enough wall. That's that's a pretty lame argument, right? <clears throat> if they'll say, well, obviously a lot of people believe this, therefore it must be true. Well, a lot of people used to believe that the sun was the center or the, the earth was the center of the universe. That didn't make it true. It just made everybody really wrong, no matter how popular it was. So those types of walls are not an argument, right? They've got a roof sitting on the ground. As Christians, we need to work at having good evidence and good reasonings, good strong walls that are holding up and supporting our roof. And we as Christians have the strongest walls. We've got the best evidence. And that's why I love apologetics because apologetics is uh, the walls, right? Apologetics, that's the walls. That's the arguments. That's the evidence. We're, we're holding it up. Well, I've got this wall over here that's called scientific evidence, right? And I can go into that in detail to show you there's a God and that he He cares about us and that he has, you know, as, as Stephen Meyer says, that there's a signature in the cell, right? That there's a signature in DNA and that you can see that and you can understand that information points to a designer. There's all of these arguments scientifically that we've, we've seen. Um, there's the ph philosophy wall, right? We've got all these reasons that God exists, not based on science, but just based on thinking and based on philosophy and based on the idea that there can't be an actual infinite. We've got a lot of good reasons to believe what we believe. And then we've got this Jesus wall <laughs> where this guy showed up in history and did things that only God could do and left us evidence for the things that he's done, right? Within the Jesus wall, you've got the words he spoke. You've got the resurrection of the changed lives of the disciples. You've got the prophecies he's fulfilled. We've got this amazing biblical wall of all of the stuff in the Bible. We've got an archaeology wall, right? On and on and on and on, a, histor a history or historiography wall, uh, we have got some really strong walls supporting our conclusion that Jesus is God, he rose from the dead, and he offers salvation to anyone who trusts in what he did for them on the cross. Christianity is a very sound, very reasonable, very strong structure. And again, that's what our show is is about. We're trying to show you the walls, the strength, the apologetics arguments that hold up our conclusion, Christianity's true. That's what a good argument does. It's a conclusion or an opinion that's held up. It's a roof that's held up by strong walls of reason and evidence. And Christians, this is this is the method that we're supposed to take to the world. This is exactly what Paul did in all the stops he made, in all the churches he planted. He reasoned, he brought evidence, he persuaded, he took time with people to, to talk with them and understand and help them see that they've been believing a, believing a lie and that they need to believe in the truth. He was helping them see their roofs don't have walls and that they should believe in a really strong structure that has many, many, many walls. That is the goal that we're trying to accomplish. That's what we're, we're to go and do to the world, right? That's First Peter 3.15. Always be ready to make defense for anyone who asks for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
We as Christians need to do a better job at giving good arguments. I mean, I, I what I'm doing is funny if you think about it, because I am giving an argument for good arguments. That's what this that's what this episode is about. Here's an argument for bad, and here's an argument for good. And we need to take time to formulate good, sound arguments, and also be able to show people how how they don't have good arguments, right? One of the best ways you can show somebody that their roof is on the ground is just by asking them questions, right? Oh, that's a really interesting opinion. Why do you think that? Right? Simple question. Why do you think that? My friends that worked over at Stand to Reason, right, they have these two questions. They're called the Columbo questions, a Columbo tactic. They say, uh, what do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? Asking those questions, what it does is it exposes that people have a roof sitting on the ground, right? People have a roof sitting on the ground. They'll say, well, I believe this. Well, why? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, because uh, this person in a position of authority said it. Okay, that's cool. So why, what was their argument, right? Why did the person in authority say that, right? The person in a position of authority, what, what was their reasoning behind that? Uh, well, I don't know. So do you just trust whatever anybody says? Well, they're really credible, and I like them. Okay, so you, you trust people you like that are popular? Well, no, but it just it seems to ring true, and it makes me feel, oh, so you're confusing passion with truth? Do you see how these questions can help you? Because a person makes an assumption, and then you ask them, oh, that's cool. Explain to me why you think that. And... um. If they don't have good reasoning, it's really easy to spot. And honestly, if you ask those questions, a lot of times people uh, will spot it themselves. They'll realize, I've been saying this thing, and I have no reason for it. I have no evidence for it. I've got no walls holding up my roof. And that's a really good place to help people get to because then you want to come in with, can I explain to you the reasoning I have for what I believe. Because I don't just have an opinion, I actually have good evidence for it, good reasoning for it, and that's why I've come to believe this opinion. That's why I've come to this conclusion. Uh, that's what we need to be doing. That's worthwhile, and it's really, really impactful to people to see that, oh, Christianity is not like my ideas. It's not just an opinion that they have based on nothing. It's an opinion based on a lot of something, a lot of something. And that wakes people up. That helps them to see, man, maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe I need to do some, you know, they'll say soul searching. Maybe I need to uh, consider the claims of Christ in the gospel. And you're there to say, hey, I want to help you with that. Let me let me give you some good arguments. Let's look at truth. Let's see if this is if this is actually real. And let's uh, let's investigate. And if you get somebody to the point of saying, yeah, I, I'm willing to investigate the gospel. I'll have an open mind. And I'll, I'm willing to investigate uh, the truth claims of Jesus. And that is an awesome place to get somebody to because Jesus does give evidence. Jesus does give really great reasons for why he is who he said he is. Uh, we see examples of this in Scripture, actually, right? Um, I alluded to it earlier, but in Mark chapter 2, when the men lower uh, their friend down, they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down to Jesus, uh, he tells the guy, son, your sins are forgiven. And then you remember the religious uh, Pharisees and scribes that were there, they get really upset and they're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Only God has the right to forgive sins. And it said, Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, looked at them and said, you know, um, you believe that it's right that only God has the power to forgive sins? Well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Uh, and his point is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven to a cripple because if you say get up and walk, 
the dude needs to get up and walk. And if he doesn't, um, you're not a credible person, right? Uh, so that's the point. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. But they were saying this guy doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. He's not in that position because he's not God. So Jesus says, watch this. To show you that I do have the authority to forgive sins, which means to show you that I am God, get up and walk. And the, this crippled man gets up and walks. Jesus validates his message with evidence, with a miracle to show who he is. He did the same thing with Thomas in John chapter 20, right? You remember Thomas wouldn't believe his friends about Jesus rising from the dead. And honestly, would you, like some of these guys were putting their foots in their mouth all the time, right? You're really going to trust Peter saying, I'm telling you, I saw the guy rise from the dead. This is too big of a deal. Like, this is a really, just, just to trust somebody blindly that somebody came back from the dead. Like, I, I wouldn't do that, right? I'd need some decent evidence for it. And that's what, that's what Thomas asked for. He says, listen, guys, I know we've had some good times. I know we've hung out for three and a half years, but you're all losing your mind. I'm going to be gone. Thank you, <laughs> right? They say, no, we really saw him. They're imploring him. And he says, listen, this is too big a deal to trust you guys on. If it happened, I want some evidence. I want to put my finger in the holes in his wrists from the crucifixion. I want to put my hand in the hole in his side from the stab wound. Then I'll believe, right? And what happens? Jesus shows up with evidence, and he says, Thomas, here, touch. Put, put your fingers in the holes in my wrist. Put your, your hand in the hole in my side. Here you go. Evidence, right? And the evidence is what compelled Thomas to bow down before Jesus and to say, my Lord and my God, right? That's what compelled worship to come from Thomas. Evidence can bring people to acknowledge who Jesus is and bring them to their knees in worship of who he is. That's what we're called to do. So I want to encourage you, have good arguments. Do not confuse truth with passion or popularity or positions of authority, but formulate good reasons and evidence that are strong walls for the conclusion you've come to. Base truth off of the walls, not off of the conclusion. Don't start with the conclusion. Start with the walls and develop good reasoning and evidence and go where the evidence leads. And it will always lead you to the truth. And it will always lead you to Jesus because he is the way and the truth and the life. Well, thanks for, for being with us today on uh, Christ Culture and Coffee. Really thankful for you listening, for you sharing this with people. Just encourage you to keep doing that. We want to spread the word on this podcast to help equip Christians to uh, defend their faith, but also to be encouraged and confident in what they believe. Thanks for being with me again today, and I'll catch you next week. You have been listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast ministry of Desert Springs Community Church in Goodyear, Arizona. For more information, visit our website at dscchurch.com.